Hi, I'm Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at TheRinger.com and host of The Ringer MLB Show. I just wanted to say thank you to all of you who stayed subscribed during our offseason. Thanks to those of you who wrote in asking when the podcast would be back. Well, I've got good news. It's back. Before we start not only the show, the season, but your fantasy baseball season, I want to tell you a little bit about Yahoo Fantasy Baseball. Spring training is in full swing. It's time to start thinking about your Yahoo Fantasy Baseball draft. Flex your skills as a real GM. The new weekly lineup format makes it even easier. Use the Set Active Players feature to set your lineup for the week in one tap. Yahoo Fantasy Baseball is the official fantasy game of Major League Baseball. Sign up now at yahoo.com slash fantasybaseball. And now, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB show on the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. Today I'll be talking to Zach Cram about Shohei Otani and the unique problems he poses for fantasy baseball, Sean Fennessy on the confusing and frustrating Mets, and Ben Lindbergh on free agency. What does that desolate landscape leave us and what will happen to Alex Cobb? But first, multimedia personality Mallory Rubin. <laughs> is this the last year of Manny Machado in Baltimore? Oh my God! Quite an intro, Michael. Wow, you're just bringing out the dagger and shoving it into my heart right away. I can't afford to let you down slowly. Let's let's go. That's kind of you. I appreciate that. Is this Manny Machado's last year with the Orioles? Well, certainly, according to everybody who's a part of the Orioles franchise. They seem to think so. I was just reading an article on my phone on the MLB app about how Duquette was smiling in a like not-so-subtle, wink-wink, tease way with the media when they asked him how Machado looks at camp. And he basically said he looks like he's going to have a good year. Smiles. Basically, like, just admitting through facial expressions in addition to every actual comment he gives on the situation that he has no hope of reaching a deal with the best player on the team. It's, It's just utterly confounding to me in every way. I will never understand I will never understand why they did not try harder here. Like, it's one thing to try and fail, but they don't appear to be making any serious go at it, which it's honestly one of the most depressing things that's ever happened to me as a sports fan. I'm I'm preparing for an absolutely gutting baseball season. But that's that's the thing about the Orioles is like they do so many difficult things right. Like they make, you know. Turning Scope into a, a good major league player, turning Trey Mancini into a good major leaguer, pouncing right on on Tim Beckham. They always build a good bullpen. Like they do so many of the other weird peripheral things, right? And that's why they've been good over the past few years, but they just right. don't like they don't try in the international market. Like they don't really develop pitchers. It and it's not like you know, right. I don't know, like the Mariners not developing pitchers or the, you know, every Mets pitcher getting hurt or something like that. Like they just don't. And it's really bizarre like it's tough to to project them as a franchise versus the other 29 teams well the the thing you just said about developing pitchers that has been one of the things at the heart of my angst over the last few months of the the offseason of Machado rumors and discussion because you know I think for most other fan bases, even if you were really really despondent at the prospect of your team trading your favorite, and the best player. You could at least rationalize the decision. As a logical person, you could say to yourself, okay, they don't think they have a chance to re-sign him. They should deal him and recoup absolute maximum value because he should return maximum value. But how am I, as an Oriole fan, supposed to have any faith in their ability to develop the, the prospects that they get in return? Like, w- the White Sox rumors in particular were really confounding to me because... Sure, in a vacuum, the idea of getting a, an arm like Mo- Michael Kopech is exciting. But the last time the Orioles had a pitcher like that, they told him to stop throwing his slider, wasted a few years of his career, traded him, and then he won a Cy Young with another team. And now he's on your team. So why am I supposed to get excited about that? And the other thing is, like in a, again, in a vacuum, the point of trading a superstar who you don't think you're going to be able to resign is, okay, Let's get as many prospects as we can, right? Let's tank. Let's do what the White Sox are doing. Let's do what the Phillies did, what the Astros did, what the Cubs did. Let's just build the farm system, bring in these players. You build the farm system and you acquire prospects like that. You turn your attention to the rebuild and to the youth 
because you hope one day, if everything goes right, to get a player like Manny Machado. They already have him. So to make no effort to retain him, is it, it defies comprehension. It really does. Particularly because he's so young. Like, it would be one thing if he was walking at, like, his age 30 or 31 season. But, like, he's the, 25. the prime is, is here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's yeah. insane. I, I have to say, moving him to shortstop, which they should have done four years ago, in his last season with the team is just disrespectful to the fan base because we're going to see like basically the thing that we should have been able to watch for 15 years and we're going to get it for what three months before they deal him. that that sucks that really sucks and also he's like I'm absolutely on fire right now he's just tearing the cover off the ball in spring he's playing great defense he looks like he's going to have an MVP season so I, I'm I not want, capable I wonder if they're of, even going to trade him now well not they they obviously are so stubborn they're not going to if they don't think they they're getting the return that he warrants and and they shouldn't but also like if they have absolutely no faith in their ability to strike a deal and clearly they don't then not getting anything is is like malpractice so last one real quick and and then I can let you go we talked about them not developing pitching prospects they do have one in the pipeline uh right-hander out of Jacksonville University big Mike Bauman <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> That's right. He has a major league future and probably Cy Young votes, if not a Cy Young award in his future. So I just, are you thinking about getting the big Mike Bauman jersey in white, orange, or black? Uh, I the, I have a black Orioles jersey um, and I have a gray one. So the next Orioles jersey I get will be, will be orange. It will be the Saturday home uniform. And I've always thought that it would be a Manny Machado jersey, Michael, but now I will be getting the Michael Bauman jersey as uh, a, a sign of my continued commitment to this franchise that finds new ways to torment me every day, every month, every year, and also as a, a symbol of my love and appreciation for you, one of my most cherished colleagues. Well, I love and appreciate you, and you are one of my most cherished <laughs> colleagues, and you're way nicer to me than Sean is. So thank you for coming on. Hey, listen, I just want to say before I go, that I hope Jake Arietta brings you nothing but misery and despair. He probably will. <laughs> Actually, you know what? This is a, a post Eagles Super Bowl world, so I'm I'm optimistic now. Yeah, you're greedy now. You're looking for titles across yeah. sports. And you've convinced me Tit- with your witchcraft that the Phillies can actually Title make the Town wild USA. card game. Title Town you USA. Can fit, you can fit... My God. You could just slide your allegiances a couple hundred miles north. And, like, you'd fit right in. The accent's pretty similar. Like, we love overseasoning food, too. Like, you could do it. What do you mean by overseasoned food? Is that a knock on Old Bay seasoning? Yes. Yes, it is. Get the fuck out of here with that nonsense. Are you kidding me right now? All right. The seasoning Jim, can, of the we can gods? end this right now. A sprinkling of heaven? You could put it on seafood. You could put it on french fries. You could put it on potato chips. You could just just pour it on your hand and lick it you can put it on the rim of a certain cocktail it's like an all-purpose and yet simultaneously gourmet seasoning i don't understand what point you're making you prefer cheese whiz to old bay seasoning michael are you there (laughs) michael all right we can (laughs) all right buddy All right, so we're here with the man who made me eat that disgusting chicken and waffle sandwich at Dodger Stadium at the World Series, Zach Cram. Zach Cram, how you doing? I'm all right. How are you doing? Recovered from that I sandwich am, four months ago? I think my hands are still sticky uh, because these people didn't realize that putting maple syrup on a, on a sandwich that you're going to have to eat with your hands in the 100 degree heat is probably a bad idea. But that is not the worst thing that happened to the Dodgers during the World Series. And it's also not what we're going to talk about, even though I'm still not over it. Um, So we've got an interesting situation, perhaps an unprecedented situation in fantasy baseball brewing. And that is the emergence of a legitimate two-way player, somebody who can contribute on as both a hitter and a pitcher, uh, someone who might be drafted as both of those, and that is Angels pitcher slash DH Shohei Otani. And uh, since you are the fantasy baseball czar of the ringer, uh, I wanted to bring you on to to talk about the unique situation that represents. Right. uh, Otani is going to become the first two-way player, the first real two-way player since Babe Ruth 100 years ago. And uh, I don't believe fantasy baseball was around back then. So the situation is truly unprecedented. Uh, And like you said, 
that has led to somewhat of a predicament, a dilemma for fantasy baseball providers. And they've sort of split in how they're treating Otani. In Yahoo, there are two different Otanis who can be drafted. You can draft Otani as a pitcher, and then someone else in your league can draft Otani as a hitter. And then theoretically, they would play at separate times. And then other sites like ESPN let only one Otani into the league, and then the person who drafts Otani can choose whether to deploy him as a hitter or a pitcher on a given day or in a given week. So insofar as I guess we don't have to have an editorial stance on this, but we are we are unitary Otani fans, right? Correct. Like the whole point of Otani is he does both. Exactly. And fantasy baseball, yes, it's about winning as you did last year, sadly, but it is also about having fun and it removes the fun of having Otani if you're just drafting him as for instance, a designated hitter who's going to hit two or three times a week. It's a lot more fun to be able to split him in multiple positions depending on lineup, depending on matchups coming up. That's the advantage the Angels have of having him on their team. It's the advantage you should have as a fantasy owner too. So the the thing about Otani as a hitter is I don't I don't really know that he's draftable as just a DH, right? Because even assuming that he hits well and assuming that he plays a couple times a week, you're like that's probably not worth the roster spot, right? Whereas as a pitcher, he's uh, probably a number two starter, right? Like we're figure we're penciling him around for like Jake Arrieta like numbers as a as a pitcher, and that's you know that guy's going to go pretty high no matter what. Whereas the the hitting, like I don't I don't know who a good comp would be, like maybe like an Adam Lind based on playing time. Yeah, exactly. Even if Otani hit the best he could possibly hit, especially in a weekly league, if you have to set your lineup at the beginning of the week as opposed to adjusting it every day, you're not going to want to roster him just as a hitter because he's just not going to maximize the playing time that even someone with lesser stats would be able to get you. Even if he plays three times a week, that's a maximum of, what, 10 to 15 homers in a season. That's not really all that valuable in in the juice ball era. And that's why I think ESPN-style unitary Otani has a bigger advantage, too, because then you can just draft him as a pitcher and slot him in as a hitter on the days that he does hit. Or if he has a start in a really pitcher... Uh, a really hitter-friendly ballpark coming up. Maybe you don't trust him on the mound, but think he could whack a home run or two. It gives you more flexibility as opposed to picking him as a hitter, and really, you're not going to get as much value out of him as you might otherwise. And even, do you know where he's position eligible? Is he just a DH, or or is he eligible as an outfielder too, in the initial setup at least? Yeah, he's just a DH, so it's like drafting Nelson Cruz who will be worse yeah. than Nelson Cruz and only play two or three times a week. Well, that's I guess that's not as fun as as I guess you'd really think it would be. And that doesn't sound um, fun at all, which is the problem. Yeah. So this Otani's a unique situation, right? Cuz he's the only guy who's going to get really regular uh play as both a pitcher and a and a position player and you know, even though he's probably not a nailed on, you know, even though you probably don't want to roster him as a DH, like you could make the argument for picking him up and, and dropping him. You know, you could you would have a hitter like that on some team in your league at some point during the season. Whereas I don't know that there's really like there are guys who play both ways. De facto two way players like Chris Jimenez or Christian Betancourt. Not that you would use Christian Betancourt as a, a catcher in in fantasy baseball or somebody like J.D. Davis on the Astros. So. This really does feel like a unique situation, but at what point does it become worth it? Do you think, you know, I'm thinking about somebody like Brendan McKay, who the the Rays drafted fourth overall and are developing as both a pitcher and a first baseman. At what point do we have to start rethinking uh, the way that we, you know, view two-way players, essentially? Like, is there a point where where pitcher batting stats become an accepted part of fantasy baseball or are these guys just so few and far between that you know that it's just worth dealing with an Otani or a McKay on a case-by-case basis. Well, I think that's part of the reason Otani is important and why how team why the way fantasy sites decide to treat Otani could set a precedent going forward is because while those guys are few and far between, 
I would imagine in the next decade we'll see at least one or two other cases. Maybe not, you know, even if Brendan McKay maximizes his talents, he's probably not going to be as good a pitcher as Otani or necessarily as good a hitter. But I think as teams try and gain more flexibility from their rosters as they fill their bullpens with eight and nine guys, the value of a player who can reasonably pitch an inning or two and also hit is going to increase, whether that's a guy who played both ways in college. I wonder if, for instance, A.J. Reed, if he were coming up now, if he might have some value by being able to mop up an inning or two in relief. And all it takes is one or two well, more. Well, he certainly has no value as a as a hitter. <laughs> right. And all it takes is one or two of those guys to become viable fantasy players to bring up this question again. Christian Betancourt last year, that pitching experiment failed pretty miserably because he couldn't find the plate. But what if he had been a decent reliever? What if he had picked up enough holds and maybe been a third or fourth tier closing option that someone might want to speculate on for saves, but he was also hitting a couple times a week? Again, Christian Betancourt, not a great hitter, but all it takes is one or two of those guys to bring up that question again. Would you want Betancourt for saves or would you want him for home runs? And it's, I think, definitely possible that we'll see a couple more of those edge cases again. Again, Otani would probably still be the peak in both hitting and pitching, but as major league teams increase their roster flexibility, I think fantasy players probably would want to as well. And this strikes me as something of a like a teleological issue almost that is the point of fantasy baseball to replicate building your own, uh, you know, seeing how you do it at putting together a, an actual major league baseball lineup, or is it its own game completely devoid of, you know, it, like only it's it's only, you know, baseball in name, essentially, or are you trying to replicate what actual major league GMs have to do? And I, you know, it strikes me as particularly for something like keeper leagues and dynasty leagues, where you're, where you're looking at, at prospects way far off in the future, the value of a guy like Davis or Betancourt, um, or, you know, if not those guys in particular, then somebody like them would be that you'd like that they give you those couple innings off the, uh, out of the bullpen every year, you know, would it make sense to, to try to go out of your way to replicate that, you know, that issue when you're when you're uh, playing fantasy baseball, and although you know just the value of innings, I guess is not um, not that great in fantasy baseball. So does that you know does that require does I guess my question is is fantasy baseball even enough like baseball where players like where it's worth trying to find ways for those players to reflect their real life value in the fantasy game? Right, I think. That might even be a broader issue, even with things like position eligibility. Uh, I wrote a piece a couple weeks ago about how, due to a weird quirk in the rule book, Anthony Rizzo, who has only ever played first base in his life and is a lefty, technically qualifies at second base in some fantasy providers this year because he technically played second base on a few bunt opportunities last year. Obviously, if you're building a real-world Major League roster, Anthony Rizzo is not going to be penciled in as your starting second baseman. But in fantasy, if you're playing on Yahoo this year or one of the other sites that does that, you can pick Anthony Rizzo as your second baseman, and that's tremendously valuable because then you can add another first baseman instead of a second baseman, and first baseman typically hit more. And yes, that's obviously an extreme case, but there are others like if... Uh, Mark Trumbo qualifies as an outfielder. You probably don't want to play Mark Trumbo as an outfielder if you're a major league general manager or uh, unless you're Dan Duquette. But if you're a fantasy general manager, that's great. You don't have to waste a utility spot on him. And I think there are always parts of baseball, whether it's defense, whether it's uh, injury preventability, that manifest in different ways in real life and fantasy. And it's a matter of how far do you push that envelope, how far is too far before it's completely distorted and not representative of baseball at all. And let me let me ask you one more that uh, just came to me because I, I realized that our draft is pretty soon and I still have to lobby you for rule changes or I still have that opportunity. Um, the 10-day DL has completely changed the way that that pitchers in particular uh, go on the DL that like it's and it's made it difficult for fantasy if you don't expand the number of DL spots from the standard what like two or three to maybe four or five or more is 
you know, where do you fall on? Can well, one, can we get more DL spots? Because this is something I do in fantasy a lot is just is draft a lot of pitchers who aren't going to be back until like May or June and just sit on them. Like, I, I did this with David Price last year. I noticed yeah. you did that so, with David Price last so, year. So can we have more DL spots in our league this year? Uh, yeah, I think that's another thing that uh, you know guys who focus on this sort of thing have written a lot about. The Dodgers are, I think, the most notable example of a team that just really had eight or nine starting pitchers and would cycle three of them through the disabled list at a time. I think that also changes things, whether it makes it more valuable to draft someone like Max Scherzer at the top of the draft because you know he's going to give you 32 starts, or if it makes it more valuable to just draft a lot of hitters at the top because you know you'll be cycling through most pitchers anyway, so why waste a top draft spot on them when you know, three rounds later you can get someone who's you know, maybe Lance McCullers who's in the middle of the draft and you just bake into his projection, all right, he's only going to pitch 120 innings. You wrote a great piece about the the demise of the starting pitcher inning totals and how the Astros and Dodgers combined only had one guy qualify for the ERA title last year. Obviously, in fantasy, if you can pitch 200 great innings, well, then you're an ace. But is it more valuable to draft someone who pitches 200 okay innings or someone who pitches 130 innings and then you know you have to make up 70, but you know, you'll have to waste a DL spot at the same time. I think it probably makes more sense to increase the number of DL slots, not by a huge amount, so you can just keep adding, you know, like the Dodgers did, but maybe by one or two. All right. Well, I will look forward to those changes in our league settings before our draft, and uh, we'll check in with with more fantasy and other baseball uh, topics throughout the season. Thanks for coming on, Zach. Thanks so much. And now let's take a quick break before we bring in Sean Fennessy. Spring training is in full swing. It's time to start thinking Yahoo Fantasy Baseball. Flex your skills as a real GM. The new weekly lineup format makes it even easier. Use the Set Active Players feature to set your lineup for the week in one tap. Yahoo Fantasy Baseball is the official fantasy game of Major League Baseball. Sign up now at yahoo.com slash fantasybaseball. And now, let's get some hot Mets action with Ringer Editor-in-Chief Sean Fantasy. Bauman, before we start, I just want you to know that I just spent three minutes in the parking lot talking with Andy and Chris about how much I disliked your Arietta take. <laughs> what would you dislike? And how much about I don't it? believe it. I just don't buy it whatsoever. Okay. I was like, I'll put a hundred grand, put a hundred grand on under eighty-five wins. Are you still, are you still mad about me uh, derailing your fantasy team with Carlos Rodon that one year, and you're just never going to trust me again? I haven't trusted you since the day that we came across one another's path, but I think that I just hate the Phillies and Jake Arrieta is a Trumpite and I hate that signing. All right. Well, we can get all this out. I was going to take it easy on you, but since we started this way. Okay. No, fire away. Okay. I'm ready to take bullets. Bauman bullets. All right. So we're joined by, I'm honored actually to be to be joined by Ringer Editor-in-Chief and uh, podcast host and crucially for this podcast Mets fan, Sean Fennessy. And uh, I just- Thank you, Michael. I just wanted to start by reading you this draft of the Noah Syndergaard, Tommy John story that I've had in my, uh, in my, my documents <laughs> folder for the past 30 months or so. So where are you at? Uh, uh, that's a, a enormously rude, unnecessary- <laughs> And I'm holding it against you. They told me I had immunity for anything I said on this podcast. So this is a safe space. No, I listen. It's it's well known that Noah Syndergaard throws triple digits and is at risk of having Tommy John at any moment of the day, whether he's throwing a baseball or not. I'm terrified, but I'm also excited about having a human flamethrower in my life. So what what am I going to do? Take the good with the bad. What's frustrating, even as somebody who isn't a Mets fan, is that the Mets developed this. I mean, they went to the World Series on the back of this incredible young rotation. They they had more reinforcements in the pipeline with Zach Wheeler and Robert Kesselman. And they just like they didn't do enough to capitalize on it at the time. Like, I don't think they they appreciated or they were unable to um, to really build a team around that incredibly rare young cheap rotation the way they did like they so cots contracts only has payroll data back to 2000 uh the mets were in the top 10 in payroll every year from 2000 to 2011 and they haven't been in the top 10 since 
and like this they just haven't spent to to complement that rotation when that rotation fell apart we saw what could happen and so like how how much of this anger is just sort of you know how much do you specifically hate the will ponds for doing this versus you know this is just generalized new york sports anxiety it's like you just ran a bright yellow highlighter over my nightmares um I of course I hold it against the Wilpons. I mean, the Wilpons mismanaged their personal finances, and that led to a mismanaged Major League Baseball team. And despite itself, um, they've been able to develop a handful of prospects. And I think Sandy Alderson has one of the most fascinating mixed track records of any recent general manager. He's made wonderful moves and he's made terrible moves. The fact that they haven't been able to develop really a single relevant position player through his entire tenure, but they have also managed to develop five, maybe six interesting, compelling starters is is like a quagmire. I, I can't even think of another relevant example. Now, the, as a Mets fan, I grew up being told that defense and pitching wins you a championship at Shea Stadium, and that should also have been true for City Field, which they built to resemble the Roman Coliseum. But... For whatever reason, and maybe Ahmed Rosario will change this, they just don't have any young players that have been able to emerge as superstars that play every day. Now, I think acquiring Jonas Cespedes was one of the biggest moves in franchise history, and I'm pretty happy with him as a Met. But teams like the Cubs and the Astros have very wisely wended development with acquisition, and they just haven't been able to make those two things fit together. And it, to me, it's not that they haven't had those those prospects. Because I think Rosario is going to be really, really good. And you know, Michael Conforto before he got hurt, like there was a at some point mid season last year, I said I'd rather have him than Aaron Judge after Aaron Judge started hitting, and then he dislocated his shoulder, and he's just coming back from that. But their thing is like they keep getting these middling veterans to to block these guys. Like the number of people that. Like the number of people that Terry Collins has found excuses to play ahead of Conforto since 2015 is just staggering to me. And now they bring in Adrian Gonzalez, who hasn't hit in, in years, to play ahead of their former first round pick, Dom Smith, at first base. So, you know, like that's that that would be the most frustrating part for me because, like, Matt Harvey getting hurt, like, pitchers get hurt, but this just seems so avoidable. Yeah, you're you're preaching to uh, a choir of one. I mean, I, the Adrian Gonzalez signing in particular, I find completely confounding because he's been washed for two years, and they actually do need to find out whether Dom Smith is a useful prospect or not. And I think the only way they're really going to find out is by giving him 400 at bats. And if they don't, I'm not sure what the purpose of this was. I, I, why not just go out and spend a hundred million dollars on a on a competent first baseman rather than try to bring somebody in who's 36 years old and is going to hit 220 and not really know what you have with Smith. Um, you're right, though. They've been doing it for years. Um, I think Jay Bruce was a was an intriguingly successful uh, pickup last season, and I think dealing him at the break was a good move. But bringing him back, if this isn't a team that's ready to win now, I don't know what the purpose of that is, and I kind of want to know if Brandon Nimmo is going to be an, a Major League Baseball player. If he's not, that's okay. I'll live with it. But I would like to find out, and at the moment, I'm not going to be able to find out. Let's assume that Syndergaard, I mean, there's no reason not to think that Syndergaard will be healthy this year any more than any other pitcher. Jacob deGrom's one of the best pitchers in baseball, but beyond that, the rotation, it's like, I don't know what you expect from Matt Harvey right now. I don't know what you expect from Steven Madsen in terms of staying healthy and you get down to guys like Gaselman and and Zach Wheeler. So where are you on on those guys? Who have you, Who are you still holding out hope for and who are you starting to prepare yourself to give up on? Well, I thought actually one of the best signings of the offseason was bringing in Jason Vargas. I, like that I was pretty too. happy yeah. about that. Um, I think that that was they got him at great money. He had a he had a solid season last year, and he's exactly the kind of steady thirty starts a year number five starter that they've been missing. That was what they wanted from Bartolo the last couple of years, and as Bartolo Colon uh, waned, as it were, uh, he was less reliable in that respect. But I think it's both risky to count on Cindergard, but it's also not wise to underestimate Harvey because Harvey is a Scott Boris client in a contract year. And M- Matt Harvey is 
simultaneously my favorite meta of the last 10 years and my least favorite person in the universe. <laughs> and I'm hoping that the, 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 the former overwhelms the latter in a big way this season, even if that means he's a New York Yankee next year or a San Diego Padre or what have you. Uh, I'm okay with that. I would just like to see one more great Matt Harvey season where he can rediscover things. What we get out of Matt's and Wheeler, it's impossible to say. Wheeler notably um, went to war with the organization during arbitration and was very unhappy with what was offered to him, despite the fact that he basically sucked last year. Uh, I'm hopeful that his feeling aggrieved will benefit the team somehow this season so that he knows he can go out and get some money in a couple of years when he's no longer arbitration eligible. But I don't, I don't know. I mean, you're right that DeGrom has been... Startlingly and fascinatingly consistent, and I'm not. I don't know if I should be able to count on that again. Another season of 30 starts and a three ERA and 220 strikeouts. I, he wasn't that kind of prospect. It's amazing he's become that kind of player. So one thing that I think one of their biggest problems over the past couple of years was Terry Collins in terms of not. You know, he didn't play the kids. There was this weird sort of like macho attitude policing that was going on. I thought that hiring Mickey Callaway, who's a, a young forward thinking, you know, pitching coach with the Indians who got a lot out of guys like Carlos Carrasco and, and Trevor Bauer, who had reputations as sort of difficult personalities. And then within spring training, he's, you know, Cespedes is having to play through nagging injuries again. And there's just like it, it feels like that culture didn't completely leave with Terry Collins. Is that something that that you're worried about? Yeah, and they also wiped out the entire medical staff, which had been kind of a joke. Yeah, it might, New York it might be better off with no years. medical staff whatsoever than than what they had. To it like. honestly feels that way. The the Cespedes thing is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous, and I don't know. I don't know enough about Mickey Calloway to say whether or not he is going to be absorbed by the culture or whether he'll redefine it. It's hard to know. Um, among Mets faithful, Jeff Wilpon in particular has a very bad reputation as a person who's not good at mm-hmm. setting culture. And if that means Mickey Calloway is Terry Collins 2.0 or Willie Randolph 4.0, uh, that's a bummer. I would be really disappointed. Uh, that said, Terry Collins did bring a team that had no business in the World Series to the World Series. So I have some, I have some empathy for a lot of the choices that he made despite the fact that I often disagreed with him and I'm certainly not interested in like a macho heat check culture in the team but boy I <laughs> I don't know I'm, I'm such an exasperated fan from the last 10 years because I feel like they've had multiple opportunities to be hugely successful and have mostly just been a 75 win team so let's end on this and bring it back to some unflattering things you said about Jake Arrieta a minute ago um when I was talking to, to Ben a little bit earlier today, we were talking about the Phillies making a couple moves and a good place to be being that team that's poised to take advantage of the Nationals trip up because of, of the Braves are still in the teardown portion of a rebuild. The Marlins are just a write off at this point, but either the Mets or the Phillies is going to be that team hanging around a little bit over 500. Uh, in ca- you know, in case Harper gets hurt and the clubhouse collapses again, like it did a couple years ago, and that's how the the Mets won the division in, in 2015. So this is still a team like for as many things have gone embarrassingly wrong for the Mets. Like this is still a pretty decent team. Make the case for them over the the Phillies is the team that's that's poised to take over if the Nationals just completely fall apart. I think they actually have more proven veteran talent. Uh, which is one of the things that theoretically holds them back long-term, but short-term, I think, with Cespedes, Bruce, uh, the obvious potential in um, Michael Conforto and Ahmed Rosario and Todd Frazier, which was, you know, I think I felt complicatedly about that signing, but that's a guy who's hit 30 home runs in a season, maybe doesn't have the on-base percentage that you want from a corner infielder, but is a, is a, isn't a Major League Baseball player. Yeah. And then, as you say, if if that pitching staff stays even moderately healthy, and particularly if DeGrom and Syndergaard stay healthy all season, there's just not, with the exception of maybe Strasburg and Scherzer, there's not a lot of teams that can counter that. And I, I just like their chances if they're healthy over the Phillies a lot more. Now, would I feel that way two years from now when... Jonas Cespedes has two bionic limbs and Jay Bruce is like, uh, you know, on the DL for the third time in, in six months. Maybe not. But right now, I do think that there's a, there's just a higher upside with the team. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. I think you're really going to like Rosario long term. I think he's he's going to bring you a lot of happiness, in the even if, if the rest of the team doesn't. 
that would be a first for me. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> All right. Thank you. My next guest uh, comes to me in a, a cloud of, of warmth and nostalgia and just all the feelings coming back because this is a man I have missed immensely this offseason, Ben Lindbergh. Hey, pal. Long time no pod. Nice to talk to you, not in, in text form. <laughs> I, I barely recognize your voice. So we're going we're gonna to cram, oh, probably about four or five months worth of free agency discussion <laughs> into about 10 to 15 minutes here. And yeah. part of the the uh, output of the, or the result of that is that this isn't going to be just me ranting about the economic implications of the of the free agent market and how that's sh- shaken out and how terrified I am for the future of the game and indeed for the future of American labor that that management <laughs> has realized that they can just sweat out individual workers and get them to sign for a fraction you know ten percent of what they're actually worth but we're gonna yeah, we're gonna that's what we all you of that. on Twitter for yeah we're just gonna accept all of that as red right now. And so I want to start with there. There are a couple guys, even, you know, this is the middle of March. Like the season is about to start. This is about the time where I stop uh, complaining about how spring training is useless and everybody ought to start watching college baseball anyway, because baseball is right around the corner. And Alex Cobb and Greg Holland have not signed. So, <laughs> it, which is bizarre to me because those, like, in this era of pitchers, there's not a team in the league that wouldn't be helped by at least one of those guys. So is there a place that you, you know, that you think that they would be especially a good fit or is there, you know, is it just everybody needs an Alex Cobb, everybody needs a Greg Holland? Yeah. I mean, given how far their contract demands presumably have fallen, it's not hard to imagine them fitting on almost any team, even teams that traditionally haven't spent for attractive free agents. And we have seen this sort of thing before with guys who have had qualifying offer issues and draft pick compensation attached, like Kyle Loesch, for instance. But that's the case with both of these guys, which also hamstrung players like Mike Moustakis. So Now you've got Cobb and Holland, and these are two guys who may have had better offers earlier this offseason that they passed up and are possibly regretting that now. It looks like they're not going to sign for anything close to, say, the three-year deals that they've been rumored to have been offered at various points this winter. And there are a lot of teams you can point to and say, yeah, this team is better with Cobb or with Holland. And really, the rumor market for both of them has been pretty tepid lately. But I think you could look at Holland and say, oh, well, he would make the Cardinals better, for instance, or he would make the Angels better, maybe. And, you know, he's been sort of connected to those teams in very intangible, amorphous ways. So you could imagine him ending up there, but it's not going to be for the three years and 50-ish that he was rumored to have been offered at one point from the Rockies. He's going to have to settle at this point. We're now about two weeks away from opening day, so we're at the point where, for pitchers in particular, there's a lot of urgency, and these guys have to sign very soon if they want to be ready for opening day. So it's kind of a game of chicken at this point, and with Cobb, I think he kind of falls into the Lance Lynn category, and I know that you're the world's number one Lance Mm -hmm. Lynn fan and are certainly upset about what happened to him this winter, but he's a pretty comparable pitcher in that they're both Tommy John guys. Cobb, I think, had his a year earlier but they're about the same age. They're 30. They had ERAs that weren't quite as, well, they were more encouraging than their peripherals, really. But you look at him and you could say, oh, you know, he'd make the Brewers better, for instance, with uh, Chase Anderson as their opening day starter and Jimmy Nelson's kind of a question mark coming off his injury. And you could look at, gosh, so many teams. That's the thing, because these guys might have to settle for one-year Lance Lynn-like contracts and hope that next winter is different in some way. There are a lot of teams in play but seemingly not that many teams that are interested. Yeah, and you mentioned the Brewers, and that's sort of where I wanted to go next because there are four teams, probably not just these four teams that have uh, taken a look at this market. Like maybe the the Twins couldn't have afforded Lance Lynn at five years or, well, you know, afford. Maybe they wouldn't have wanted to go get Lance Lynn at five years, 80 million mm-hmm. or something like that. But, they, but at one year and 12, they were like, you know, we need pitchers. We've got a good team. And, you know, this is the price is sunk to a point where we're going to go after this guy and actually make our rotation better. 
the same, you know, something similar with the Phillies and Jake Arrieta, where maybe if he's looking for like five years, one twenty, he's not going to take that front loaded three year deal that the that the Phillies gave him. You know, he'd hold out for for more years. And so mm-hmm. I've got the Brewers, the Angels, the Phillies, and the Twins. It's teams that were sort of looking at you know, sort of back end of wild card contention, and then just decided, you know, let's go get those five wins that that we're missing because you could just buy those on the free agent market. And one thing that all four of those teams have in common is they need another starting pitcher. And mm-hmm. you know, I I just wonder, you know, the Phillies have said that they're it, that uh, they're really high on Nick Pavetta as their number five starter, but like. That's a really bad reason not to go get somebody. <laughs> and I'm not a huge Alex Cobb guy either. But like, you know, if if Alex Cobb costs you, I don't know, twelve fifteen million this year, maybe you you know two for twenty five or something. Like, you know, there's there's no guarantee that Jared Eikhoff's gonna gonna be good this year. There's no guarantee that Vince Velasquez. Well, I almost guarantee Vince Velasquez misses ten starts this season. <laughs> sure. It's so you know, it, it it just boggles the mind that particularly those teams. Teams like the Phillies, who have nothing but money to spend, aren't, you know, I know the Phillies just got Arietta and they signed Carlos Santana, but like they can, every team can pretty much do more. And those are teams in particular that would most benefit from signing one of these guys. Yeah, the Phillies are a team that before the Arietta signing, at least, was talking about potentially carrying nine relievers, which, you know, much to our horror, but they had the sort of rotation that seemed that to make that make some sense. And so I think there's certainly still some swish cheese at the back of that rotation that they could shore up. And I think for a while, there was a question about whether they would spend this winter or whether they would spend next winter. We knew they were going to spend at some point because they have the big TV deal. They don't have a lot of money committed to anyone. We know they've spent a lot more in the past. So it was just a question of when is the most opportune time to push your chips in. And obviously, they felt that this was a decent time to do it with guys whose markets perhaps were not as strong as they could have been. And they ended up swooping in and getting Arietta And I think they're going to be a popular surprise pick this year. Maybe so almost much so, so that, trendy that they're overrated. Yeah, yeah I think they're I exactly. Think they're, they're they won't even qualify point. as a surprise, yeah. right? So I think you know when they sign a guy for three years, they're going to be good at some point during that period. So it makes sense for them to add if it's a one-year deal. I don't know if this is their year. I think they could make a run. I don't think they're better than the Nationals, but we've seen great Nationals teams not win their division in the fairly recent history. So I could certainly envision that. Again, it's just, you know, you have this kind of hierarchical stratified market where you have some really good teams and a bunch of not very good teams and then a few teams in the middle and some teams that are in the middle or could have been in the middle if they had operated differently this winter have decided we don't have a shot we're going to bide our time and wait until some of these super teams look a little more vulnerable and others have said well this is the time that we can steal a march on some of these teams that are standing pat this offseason and some of those teams that you mentioned have done that I think much to their benefit and have certainly made themselves more interesting. So I think that all of those teams could still make an addition here. And it's really just a question of how far the demands come down as opening day approaches. And the the Nationals thing, I think, is is the key because, I mean, they're so far off the front as a favorite in that division. It's hard to imagine them collapsing, but it's happened before. And I like just you know, you think about the 2015 Mets, like it, you just have to be the team that's in position because the NL East right now is just a total mess apart from the Nationals. And, you know, even assuming the Phillies are going to be 500 ish requires a lot of things to break their way. Whereas the, the wild card is like, that's going to be pretty competitive this year. I mean, both teams that mm-hmm. were in the wild card last year are back. The Brewers are going to be improved. The Cardinals are going to be there. The Giants are, you know, they're at least stating their intention to try to be competitive. You know, that's not something that you can just sort of fall backwards into. But the Nationals, that brings up an interesting question about, you know, there's going to be a gigantic free agent next next season in Bryce Harper. Mm-hmm. You know, what does their long-term outlook look like? Is this their like did they have to treat this like the their last go around and if and if so, why were they offering Jake Arrieta that that contract? Yeah, I don't think they're in the same boat, certainly, as, say, the Orioles, who have their own high-profile free agent who's going to be gone, and their outlook, well, I think the Orioles are going to be... We're, I mean, we're going to talk about the Orioles later on the podcast, but, right. I, you know, they're not going to be good no matter what. That's... No. Whether, yeah. Right. 
But I think the Nationals, I don't think their window closes with the finality that we've seen other teams, you know, when we've been able to look ahead and say, well, the Tigers are good, but they're going to be bad in year X. Or maybe you can look at some other teams and and make that case, the, the Angels, the Diamondbacks, and you can say there's this window and it's closing and here's when it won't be open anymore. I don't know that the Nationals quite have the same sort of situation as great as Harper is. I'm sure they'll make every effort to resign him, but they have a lot of talented young players who are under team control for a while. They have someone like Strasburg who's signed to an extension. It's not what we saw with the Royals, say, where mm-hmm. that championship team just got dismantled all in the same year when everyone reached free agency at the same time. And there was really no coming back from that. I think the Nationals can still string this along and have enough young, talented prospects who are just coming up or on the verge of coming up that they can remain in contention. I don't know that they'll continue to be the powerhouse that they've been, at least in the regular season, but I wouldn't say that they're approaching the the end of a, a tunnel here and that they'll be doomed for years to come. And I'm curious, I don't know how much thought you've given this and, you know, it, if and I don't even know how we can predict something like this, but how much do you think that this offseason is going to be representative of future offseasons because i think it, it right. it's proof of concept that those middle class free agents can just that you could just sweat them out and that mm-hmm. this could just be the bottom you know it could just bottom out but i'm we we haven't had a test case for somebody like harper or machado or josh donaldson players who are so good that the you know the temptation to play the waiting game might not you know it might not be uh it, or the, the perils of not getting that guy might be too great. So do yeah. you have, I don't know, any thoughts on how that might affect somebody like Harper or Machado? I do. Well, let's just briefly run through a, a highly abridged version of what happened this winter, as best as we can tell. Again, this the cratering of free agency was the central story of the offseason. I'm sure that you and I could easily spend an entire episode discussing the plight of the proletariat, but mm-hmm. I'll try to boil it down to a, a bullet point list of factors that may have caused or contributed to what we've seen. I don't think we can assign the blame solely to any one thing, but just going down the list, I think you had a mix of some temporary cyclical sort of factors and some that are more lasting and serious and potentially existential threats. So you have something like the Otani sweepstakes and the latest and greatest Marlins fire sale, which may have held things up early on. You've got the competitive balance tax and some teams trying to limbo under the limits there to avoid triggering harsher penalties. You've got a weak class this year, coupled with the prospect, as you've mentioned, of higher profile free agents becoming available next winter. I think there's a growing belief among teams that they can create good players, which is why we've seen the middle tier of free agents be the hardest hit. So I think teams are still willing to shell out for no doubt superstar types like Harper and Machado, but it's tantalizing to think that today's one win player can be tomorrow's two or three win player with a swing change here or a new pitch there. And you can talk yourself out of signing Mike Moustakis or Neil Walker if you think you have someone comparable in the house who's making league minimum. And then while I think the impact of tanking in baseball has been a bit overblown, it is true. I think it's been been a little overblown too. Yeah, I agree. But as Zach, Graham, as Zach Graham covered in a recent Ringer article, it is true that there was less than the usual amount of winter turnover among last year's playoff teams because a lot of last year's top teams like the Astros, the Indians, the Dodgers, they were already stacked at the end of last season. They didn't really have close competitors who were pushing them to spend. And while it might sound a little like victim blaming, I do think there are some agents who may have misread the market a little bit and passed up bigger deals than they ended up landing. So if every free agent had signed for the maximum amount of money he was offered, things might look a little rosier. Anyway, I think the greatest threat to the economic balance of baseball is that in comparison to previous eras, there's just a greater portion of the production in the league today concentrated among those poorly paid younger players in their pre-arbitration and arbitration years. And at the same time, fewer players in their prime are reaching free agency at all, as opposed to signing early long-term extensions. And the players who do reach free agency are finding that there are just fewer suckers out there among owners and front office folks who pay aging players who are, you know, past their primes for their past production. So every team today is well aware of projections and aging curves and the historical returns of the Pujols type contracts. So 
that's the big concern, I think, for the players going forward. They're stuck with this CBA for the next few years, but they have to try to figure out a way to shift some of the earning power from older players to younger players. And they're going to have to make some sort of concession in order to make that happen because the players or the owners are pretty happy, I think, with the, the way things are right now. So that's all going to be interesting to see how bargained. That, it'll be interesting right. to see how that plays out within the union where more power tends yeah. to be held by yeah, so I don't think it's going to make Harper or Machado a, par- a popper next offseason. I don't think they're going to suffer that much, but I think it's the lower tier of free agent that just can't count on the massive contract anymore. All right. And one last thing. And if you thought you were getting out of here without doing one of these, you got another thing coming. <laughs> I'm going to give you a name and you have to tell me whether this person is an Arizona State pitcher or whether he is a character from a Coen Brothers movie. And that name All is right. Boyd Vanderkoy. Boyd Vanderkoy. Uh, I'm going to say if we're just doing one guy, you're going to take the college pitcher. Give me the college pitcher. And this is not fun. Like you don't you don't guess based on what the I name actually said. You always try, try to, to add, thank you. <laughs> and you have done it again. Congratulations. It's all game theory. <laughs> all right. I did it. All right. I know everything well, about college baseball. All right, okay. Ben Lindbergh. You can find his stuff on theringer.com and on Twitter. And, and yeah, it's good to good to have you back. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again to Mallory Rubin, Zach Cram, Sean Fennessy, and Ben Lindbergh. And thank you for listening to the Ringer MLB show on the Ringer Podcast Network. We'll be back with a new episode next week. We'll see you then. Our theme song was made by our friends at songfinch.com. Check out Songfinch to turn your stories, memories, and feelings into a one-of-a-kind song by professional musicians. It makes a perfect gift for any occasion. Songfinch.com. Hey guys, I'm Mark Titus. And I'm Tate Frazier. And we are the hosts of One Shining Podcast. It is March. Check your calendars. It's true. March Madness is coming up. We're here to talk about all things college basketball. If you like FBI investigations, Mm -hmm. if you like teams that are on the bubble and think they belong in even though they have like 16 losses come check out one shiny podcast if you like buzzer beaters buzz williams being buzzed watching basketball those are all three things you can do and you can listen to us we're going to talk about everything that happens in the ncaa tournament it's going to be great we're going to be here all month please subscribe to one shiny podcast check all of our, our stuff out tate has done some very disgusting things for money in the past yes. and he he is desperate more to for come. more subscribers mm-hmm. so he doesn't have to return to his old life so please 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 Subscribe to our pod. Check us out. We're having a lot of fun this March. Uh, you can get us wherever you find your podcast, Apple, Stitcher, SoundCloud. I, I'm a Google Play guy. Google Play doesn't get enough love when people do this list. And Spotify. People and are Spotify. on Spotify now, so, so go check it out.